One year after the January 6th assault on Congress, we talk about the rising tide of fascism and how a people's movement can defeat it. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we'll be talking to Claudia De La Cruz. She is the co-executive director of the People's Forum. She is a popular educator, community organizer, and theologian. We're also talking to Dr. Gabriel Rockhill. He is the founding director of the Critical Theory Workshop and professor of philosophy at Villanova University. Claudia, Gabriel, welcome to The Socialist Program. Thank you so much for inviting us. Thanks for having us on. Great to have you. Claudia, let's start with you. This is not exactly the the anniversary of January 6th, but close enough. And this is the second part of a two-part series that we're doing here on The Socialist Program. Last week, we were joined by Professor Gerald Horn. There's a lot to cover about January 6th. It's in the news. One of the things that's in the news right now, perhaps not that surprising, is that Attorney General Merrick Garland has announced the formation of a new domestic terrorism unit to fight what they call right-wing extremism, or actually what they call extremism and radicalism in America. It's a unit that will be funded to the tune of $100 million, half of which will go to the FBI. And when you look at the description of what the unit's going to do, it's focusing, it says, on domestic terrorism, white supremacist organizations, and anarchist groups. Now, here we have a year after January 6th, clearly the organizer of that day, the organizer of that mob that stormed the Capitol. That would be none other than Donald Trump. He's sitting in Mar-a-Lago. He's playing golf every day. He's making speeches. He's involved in a big political comeback. Uh, Obviously, he not only didn't face recriminations outside of the loss of his Twitter, but, you know, he's getting stronger. And here the domestic terrorism unit of the FBI is formed to go after, yes, some fascists, but also anarchist groups. And it's quite clear to anyone who has followed this that anarchism is a stand-in term at this point for those seeking radical social change, meaning those on the left. Anyway, your comments. I mean, I think to your point, right, there has not been any real consequences for the orchestrators of January 6th of 2021. What does that mean for the white supremacist Trump followers? It only solidified and emboldened them even more. And historically, what we know to be labeled as domestic terrorism in the United States has had to do with folks that are seeking freedom or liberation from state repression. We have to remember, you know, everything from the Underground Railroad to the Black Panther Party to, you know, Standing Rock, all of these movements have been considered domestic terrorist groups, when in reality, they are fighting against white supremacy, capitalism, a lot of them are also very much connected to internationalist working class movements. And so when we're thinking about this domestic terrorism unit, we need to think about what has been defined as terrorists within the United States. And who are the folks that have been mostly penalized, criminalized in prisons? We still have, we have hundreds of political prisoners precisely because of laws that have been implemented, that have persecuted and and criminalize the actions of people who have solely looked for building liberation. And so it's very important for progressive movements, for leftists, for folks that are engaged in struggle in the United States to look at this domestic terrorism unit as a threat 
to our organizing, especially in the moments of crises in which we are today, which will ultimately mean the intensifying of struggles in the upcoming years. And so it's very important for us not to just have this as they're, you know, looking to have white supremacist groups or fascist groups, because that is not the history of the United States of America. Historically, those who have been persecuted, criminalized, and locked up and have had the key thrown away have been our people, the people that are are looking to build liberation in this country. Yeah. And to Claudia's point, Gabriel, if you know, 40 or 50,000 people who had come to Washington from the black community or the Latino community or the indigenous community had marched on the Capitol that day, there would have been a lot of military preparation to greet them, a whole lot. I mean, two days before January 6th, 300 law enforcement officials met together because they had dire warnings that violent a violent assault was likely to happen in Washington, D.C. at the Capitol. That's the seat of the U.S. government. The Capitol Police have 3,500 people in their police department. They have one mission, which is to defend the Capitol and to defend Congress. So 300 law enforcement officials meet two days beforehand, and yet when the attack happens on the Capitol, only one-fifth of the Capitol Police Force is actually mobilized that day. None of them are in riot gear. They have been told explicitly that they cannot use non-lethal weapons like tear gas and pepper spray. Anyway, when you think about what actually happened and you contrast it with what would have happened if this was a progressive or a black or Latino or indigenous-led demonstration, it can't become clearer to anyone with any objective faculty, that the state, the capitalist state, which says it's the vehicle or vessel for democracy, is in fact inclined to be with the right wing and to be with the fascists. Otherwise, there would have been a different police presence. Absolutely. I mean, according to the Senate investigation itself, there was a multi-tiered failure on the part of the intelligence agencies, you know, included the Department of Homeland Security, It included, of course, the top command of the National Guard. And one of the things that we have to be asking is, well, if it is indeed the case that military, police, and intelligence agencies allowed this to happen and allowed it to happen in a way that they would not allow if it were activists who were progressive, people of color, etc., then why hasn't there been serious investigations or prosecutions of those who are really the leaders and organizers of the movement to overturn the election. There are three elements, I think, that are really important here. One is the top military and intelligence command, right, that was overseeing the Capitol Police, that was also overseeing the uh, sluggish and eventual deployment of the National Guard. And there are other elements, of course, and we can go into this in greater detail. There's also the financial backers of the event itself, and of the GOP congresspeople who are supportive of the idea that the election was stolen. And so the financial backers have not been prosecuted. There's been no investigation that I know of, at least on that front. And then thirdly, the shock troops themselves, meaning the three principal organizations that were involved in storming the Capitol, the leaders of those organizations, for the most part, and we could go into the details in this regard, have not faced prosecution. Many of them are unindicted. And moreover, many of them, particularly in the two major organizations of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, have direct connections to intelligence agencies, in particular the FBI, right? And so what we would need on the part of an investigation is to actually explore the top military intelligence command, the financial backers of the event, and the shock troops, not only on the ground, but the leaders of the shock troops. And so for the Biden administration, then instead of doing all of that, to green light a kind of law and order reaction and to use the event, weaponize the event for an increase in military spending, right, the highest budget ever, an increase in police and surveillance and the whole apparatus, 
while backing off on so many of the campaign promises, right, that he rose to power with, leaves us a year and a half after the historic protests against racist police violence in this country and the capitalist roots of that violence in a situation where the response of the government is more law and order, more policing, more funding to precisely some of these agencies that should be investigated in greater detail. Claudia, in the last weeks of the Trump administration, Trump was impeached for a second time by the Democrats. He wasn't convicted. He didn't have, there weren't enough Republican votes to join with the Democrats. It was kind of political theater, not kind of political theater. It was political theater. They were impeaching somebody who was leaving office on January 20th, and the impeachment started like January 12th. So obviously a political exercise. Then Trump can speak to his base and say, look, this is a political exercise. I'm being persecuted and prosecuted, even though I'm leaving office, it's clearly a political hit job. It's meant for no other purpose. So in a way, it gave Trump an opportunity to to sort of reposition himself as the victim of the Democrats after the violent assault disperses Congress. He poses as the victim once again, and the Democrats go through this exercise. They don't have the votes to impeach him. I mean, to really convict him at impeachment. He's leaving anyway. So he gets back on his feet. And then the Democrats don't prosecute him for what is obviously a seditious conspiracy. When you design a program, an operation to overturn a constitutionally mandated process to certify the election, an election that he lost by more than 7 million votes. He narrowly lost the Electoral College, but a large popular vote defeat. He tried to stop that from happening, and yet he's not in jail. He's still playing golf. So he gets to be the victim of a political persecution without suffering any of the consequences of a real prosecution. And again, if we were to put this shoe on somebody else's foot, like the foot of civil rights groups or labor unions or poor people's organizations, there's no question that the storming of the Capitol and the dispersal of Congress would mean that you would be in jail. We would be in jail. There's no question about that. And it shows how weak the January 6th investigating commission is in Congress. Again, just an exercise in political theater in the face of a growing and consolidating fascist movement. That's right. I mean, I think it's important to to understand that Trump is a result of this capitalist system. (laughs) He is the result of what this system is, of what this state is. And so if we're able to understand that, we're also able to understand that they are not gonna prosecute, they're not gonna convict, and they're not gonna jail what is a product of their system. And not only that, that is part of the elite class and has played his cards as well, um, to tend to the interest of a particular sector of the ruling class. And so, you know, we can expect for the bourgeois system for its democratic system to be able to be accountable to the masses because that that is not what it was created for you know and even if he threatened the very fabric of what the constitution is and the theater that comes with you know having a blue and a red or having a democratic party and a republican party which is theater because what it does is show people that there's some type of option when in reality there isn't an option they're not going to go against one of their own because he's still one of their own. And we need to be able to understand that. And so if we look at things from those lenses, if we understand that from a materialist, historical and dialectic analysis, we know that we can't expect for the bourgeois system to go after their own. They will not. Yeah. And I want to, as we continue in this conversation, talk about building a movement against of fascism, which isn't simply a defense of the existing bourgeois democratic system, which is obviously organically connected to the rise of fascism. I want to talk about that as we continue in the interview. But but first, we have a few other stops along the way. Gabriel, Rafael Correa, who was the left president of Ecuador, famously said, 
Washington, D.C. will be the only capital city in the world where there will never be a coup d'etat because there's no U.S. embassy in Washington, D.C. And of course, that's technically true. The U.S. embassies are in the capitals of other countries. And he's making the point that the U.S. embassy in other countries has been the place, the hub, the organizing center for all kinds of coup d'etats against democratically elected and progressive governments, frequently leading to the ascension of a fascist government. And that's another part of this story, because the Democrats say about the Republicans and about Trump, he organized a storming of the citadel of the greatest democracy in the world, when in fact the greatest democracy in the world spends every day of the year engaged in regime change and coup d'etat organizing against governments that seek to be independent. And I think this is another part of the story that's completely covered up in the capitalist media, in the corporate dominated media. This presentation that what's happening in America is the fight between the good guys, democracy, and the Democrats and Biden, and the bad guys like Donald Trump and his right-wing supporters. And that sort of strips out the character, the imperial character of the system. And also, it conceals that the manifestations or practical application of imperial policies in other countries looks just like fascism. Anyway, your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely, Brian. It's such an important part of this story because, unfortunately, so much of American politics is unbelievably provincial in the sense that it focuses on what's going on in the United States and turns a blind eye to a lot of what's going on elsewhere in the world, unless it's in order to weaponize certain issues like the rise of the Chinese economy or other such things. And so most American citizens or most people living in the United States don't even know that the US government, and this has been both Republican and Democratic administrations, has sought to overthrow, often successfully, more than 50 foreign governments since World War II, the majority of which were democratically elected. And so there is a deep history in this country of imperialism and the overthrowing of democratic popular governments in the name of supporting fascist dictatorships, authoritarian movements, anti-communist movements and shock troops around the world. And this is a bloody and horrible history that both the Republicans and Democrats have pursued conjointly. In fact, in one of the most telling statistics of the history of U.S. support of death squads and other such things around the world, John Stockwell, a former member of the CIA with 13 other former members of the CIA, did a study and they found that the U.S. was responsible, and the CIA more specifically, for the direct death of 6 million people between 1947 and 1987 when the study was conducted, right? So this is the scale that we're dealing with. I'd just like to relate that though back very quickly to your earlier exchange with Claudia, because I think it's also important that if the leaders of this movement, the financial backers, et cetera, are not prosecuted, then this means that the fascist threat is kept, right, within the confines of the bourgeois democracy, but it's always there lurking in the margins, so to speak. And we have a precedent for this. The American Liberty League was organized in order to overthrow the US government. And we might get into this later in the conversation. But one important thing that happened, it was a proven conspiracy to overthrow the US government and establish a fascist dictatorship when FDR was president. Did the Democrats prosecute? Did they go after the leaders of these movements? No, they found that there was a conspiracy to overthrow the US government and establish a fascist dictatorship, but they did not prosecute the leaders. They did not go after the financial backers. And the Liberty League, lo and behold, continued after 1934 and ran a Republican candidate for the next election against FDR. And that Republican candidate has been described by the great Grace Hudgens as being nothing less than a fascist. So this aspect of the narrative is very important for progressives to understand so that they're not hoodwinked by the false narratives of the Democratic Party, which is ultimately a bourgeois party and a party of the capitalist ruling class. 
Yeah, very important points. Claudia, you in your everyday work are building solidarity with peoples all over the world, including, and in particular in many places, solidarity with people in Latin America. When you think about what the U.S. role in Latin America in particular, through the School of the Americas, through the CIA, of course, Philip Agee's famous book, Inside the Company, and he was a station chief in Venezuela. I mean, when you look at what the U.S. actually did in Latin America and is attempting to do, had is attempted to do in Venezuela, in Bolivia, in Ecuador, in Honduras, certainly in Chile in, in 1973, when you think about it, we can both acknowledge that there is a difference between a bourgeois democratic form of government in the United States and, say, a fascist government. It's not that those two things would be unimportant. They would be significant, fundamental, a qualitative shift in American politics if it became a fascist regime. But for the people of Latin America or other countries or other continents, the impact of American policy feels a lot like fascism. It feels the same as what fascism would look like here at home because it is fascism. It has been an export of American bourgeois democracy is fascism in other places. And I think if people who are anti-Trump and wanting to fight against Trump righteously and fighting against the Republican sort of direction towards fascism and not recognize this fact, it ends up in the narrow channel of supporting the Democratic Party, which in turn exports fascism internationally. Anyway, your thoughts. Absolutely right. I think it's important for us to be able to make those connections. I mean, the best case study is Chile. Chile, which is the cradle of neoliberalism and what happens in the so-called moments of democracy where there still was a lingering, a lingering effect of what the dictatorship of Pinochet was until recently, till Boric's won, you know, the fight for a new constitution because a constitution that continued even in the moments of democracy, which is what is called historically, the constitution that was created during the times of Pinochet. And so it's important for us to understand that we need to go beyond what the realms of the United States is in terms of politics, in terms of understanding the economy. We need to make connections that are international because capitalism is international, it's global. And so it has an impact, it has an effect all over the world. And the, you know, Latin America and the Caribbean have been made to be the backyard of the United States. So things that happen here domestically obviously have an impact in the backyard, quote unquote. It has an impact in Latin America, it has an impact in the Caribbean. And so for our comrades, our friends that are in Latin America and the Caribbean, there's always a huge interest to know and understand what's happening in the United States. And it's interesting also that when January 6th happened, there was nothing but solidarity statements coming in from our friends, our comrades, the people of Latin America and the Caribbean, because they have suffered coups and coups that have been orchestrated in Washington. And so they know what it means to have what they are trying to build as popular democracies toppled by fascist forces, toppled by imperialism, toppled by capitalism. And so they have a deep understanding in Chile, in Honduras, in Nicaragua, in Cuba, in Peru. Like they know what it means to be invaded. They know what it means to have what is the equivalent of their federal buildings taken over by paramilitaries. These are all things that in our history we found more than once. The Dominican Republic, which is where I'm from, has been intervened more than 20 times in its history. Since 1916, we've been intervened by the United States of America. And we are not considered to be a colony as is Puerto Rico, right? But we are a neo-colony of the United States of America. And we operate under the same type of logic as the United States in its capitalist system. And so I think it's important for us to have a wider analysis, an international analysis, and beyond the analysis also, an internationalist approach to our work that is anti-imperial, that is anti-capitalist, because ultimately these systems are global systems that are seeking to deepen and sharpen its teeth in what popular democracies are all over the world. 
I want to stay with that theme, Gabriel, for a second. The fact that fascism comes in the context of global capitalism, because capitalism is a global system. It's been a global system since the 14th century, really. You know, Marx talks about that a great deal in his discussions with Kautsky about the evolution of the global market, the world market. And capitalism has evolved. It went through a period where colonialism was a policy and then colonialism became, because colonialism was everywhere, part of the global system of capitalism, what Lenin called the highest stage of capitalism, leading inevitably to to war between the capitalists for the redivision of world markets or world colonies or spheres of influence. So while it has gone through evolutionary changes, we can see it is a global system. And there are elements of fascism, of modern day classic fascism, that are deeply rooted in sort of the foundational essence of this global system of capitalism. Again, I don't want to say there's no difference between bourgeois democracy and fascism. The form of government makes a great deal of difference in many, many ways. So we're not minimizing that. But when you think about the sort of characteristic features of what we think about when we think about fascism, the idea of racial supremacy, of militarism, the regimentation of labor, you know, the excessive policing, the cult of violence. These are all characteristic features of fascism. But think about just the evolution of the United States or the so-called new world as part of this global system of capitalism. You know, 12 million people from Africa were kidnapped and brought to the Americas as enslaved labor because there wasn't an already existing proletariat in South America or North America. The proletariat had to be imported. Some of it emigrated and some of it was enslaved and kidnapped. And the numbers are staggering. I mean, the number of people kidnapped from Africa and brought as enslaved people in chains was 12.5 million. Two million of them died in that voyage. Two million. 1.8 million died, it's estimated, in the voyage. Just couldn't, the conditions were so horrible. So that meant 10 million enslaved people became the working class in the Americas, in Brazil, in the Caribbean, in the United States. And you can't really have the proletariat be an enslaved mass population without somehow presenting an ideological explanation for their enslavement. And that's the function of white racism, of white supremacy, to justify this system of enslavement. And in what way is that different from Nazism? I mean, in fact, when, and I know you have written about and studied German fascism quite a bit, and fascism in continental Europe, many of these fascistic ideas that were adopted by the fascist movement in the mid or late 1920s or 1930s are actually borrowed from the way the evolution of American capitalism with bourgeois democracy actually happened. That's absolutely right, Brian. And it's so important that you're pointing this out because the you know, Nazi war machine and the, the Nazi state itself was in many ways modeled off of the United States. And if you read Mein Kampf, Hitler points out quite explicitly that the state that has made the most progress in the direction that the Third Reich was headed in is the United States. And so there's a direct series of connections. In fact, he considered the wild, wild East to be the Nazis equivalent to the U.S.'s wild, wild West. So just as the U.S. settler colony was expanding its genocidal war against the indigenous population, the Mexican population, and subjecting Africans to chattel slavery and, and death, as you just pointed out, that whole war, the colonial war, was precisely what Hitler undertook against the savage barbarians of the East, right? And in particular, those in the Soviet Union who are identified as part of this Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy against the very principles of Western civilization. And so that history is very important to know. And it's one of the reasons that I think that the category of fascism, it's helpful to relate the category of fascism to kind of two different levels of analysis. 
And at one level, one very general sense, there's a fascist element to the history of capitalist colonial expansion. What I mean by that is that the capitalist ruling class used the state and vigilantes, militias, etc., in order to impose by force on the populations of the world exploitative and oppressive relationships of the capitalist system. And so the great M.A. Césaire pointed this out, right? We used to build concentration camps in the colonies. Everyone was fine with that. They start getting bent out of shape when it starts happening in Europe with the Nazis, right? But that being said, it is also important if you're going to do conjunctural analysis to highlight some of the specificities of what happened in the early 20th century. And so one of the lead-ups to what happened then was the financial crisis of the capitalist system and the fact that many people around the world were recognizing that capitalism wasn't working for the masses of humanity. And this was coupled with the fact that in 1917, there was the first successful, you know, workers' revolution that established a workers' state. And so capitalism had a very clear alternative. And so one way of understanding the specificity of fascism as it conjuncturally emerges in Europe in the early 20th century is at least in part a reaction formation to the ideological and economic crisis of the capitalist world, coupled with the threat of an alternative system, meaning a socialist system. And so capitalism had to go on the warpath. And that's why the capitalist ruling class funded the rise of Hitler and Mussolini and wanted him, as he did, particularly in the case of Hitler, to unleash the war of wars on the Soviet Union, on the greatest threat to the capitalist system at that point in time. Gabriel, let me just stay with you for a second about what actually happened in the 1930s. The U.S. obviously went to war against Nazi Germany, and at the end of the war proclaimed that the victory against fascism was a triumph of bourgeois democracy. They didn't call it bourgeois democracy, of course, a triumph of democracy in America. But I know I've read your writings, and I know that you and Claudia have discussed this and taught about this. The U.S. ruling class was pretty pro-German when Hitler took over. And Hitler didn't seize power in 1933. There wasn't a Nazi revolution or a Nazi even counter-revolution. He was appointed. He was appointed by right-center political forces within the German capitalist establishment who had myriad ties with the Bush family, the Kennedy family, Henry Ford. And a lot of the U.S. bourgeoisie looked at Germany as a way to regiment and discipline or to destroy the growing labor movement of the 1930s. There wasn't like a profound anti-fascism within the American bourgeoisie. And of course, in Madison Square Garden in 1939, this was in New York, not Montgomery, Alabama, New York City. The garden was filled up with people saluting the swastika. Anyway, let's just talk about the American bourgeoisie. Yes, it ended up against Germany once the war started, but let's talk about their proclivities. Yes, exactly. And the, the narrative uh, around the U.S.'s involvement in World War II as being the good war, the war against fascism, etc., is so misguided because it misrepresents both the lead up to the war and the fact that the U.S. and the other bourgeois democracies of the West were not interested in forming a common front against fascism. On the contrary, and the Soviets, of course, were reaching out to the West and trying to do anything that they could to keep fascism at bay. The financial backers, of course, also included the major elements in the U.S. corporatocracy. Ford is the most famous because, of course, he was awarded the highest medal of distinction for a foreigner by the Nazi government, and they awarded Mussolini the same award the exact same year. And so it's misguided to think that somehow the, the capitalist ruling class or the political elite within the United States was opposed to Nazism and fascism into the lead up to the war. In fact, President Truman had said, well, let's just wait and let Germany and Soviet Union battle it out. And then we'll kind of jump in at the last second in order to support who's ever winning. And that way we make sure they massacre you know, one another as much as possible. And in many ways, that's kind of what happened in World War II. The U.S. ruling class was convinced, like the ruling class and the other bourgeois democracies, that the Nazi war machine was going to destroy the Soviet Union and finally get the job done because it's exactly what they tried to do. 14 capitalist countries between 1918 and 1920 
to strangle the red babe in its crib, according to Winston Churchill. They did not succeed in doing that. So Nazism, for certain members of the global capitalist ruling class, was the final solution to this form of class warfare. The U.S. did get involved in the war, though, after the Red Army, to the surprise of so many people at the time, started winning against the Nazi war machine, the undefeated Nazi war machine, and the most powerful war machine in the history of humanity at that point in time. And it not only started winning, it started marching westward. And so the threat was that since the bourgeois democracies were not preserving the population against fascism, that the socialists and the communists from the East would bring a true liberation not only from fascism, but also from the very roots of fascism, and that is the capitalist system. That could not be allowed to occur. Hence the necessity of the U.S. intervention and the opening up of the Western Front two years later. And so that larger history is so important to know, along with the fact that the U.S. and particularly the intelligence community was trying to negotiate deals with the Nazis, particularly Alan Dulles in Switzerland, in order to sign a peace agreement with the West so that he could release you know, or unleash the full force of the Nazi war machine on on the Soviets. So all of this deeper history is very important to know, as well as the recuperation of so many members of the Nazi high command and the fascist high command that were either redistributed to Latin America through the various rat lines that were run. Many of them were brought to the United States, like the 1600 Nazi scientists brought in Operation Paperclip. Others were sent elsewhere in the world. The same thing happened in Japan, for that matter. So there's a lot more to discuss here, but I'll just leave it at that, that we really have to understand that the bourgeois state as it functions, right, it does provide certain limits against the unleashing of extreme fascist violence against particular sectors of the population. But it keeps fascism there within close, close reach, if not, you know, actually put into power in order to make sure that at the end of the day, the capitalist ruling class remains in power. Claudia, you are in New York City, and New York City was the center of what became known as the Occupy Movement in 2011. It started on September 17th. It became a really fast-growing, spontaneous movement after the New York Police Department, talking about fascism, you know, they suppressed one peaceful protest after another. They arrested 700 people on the Brooklyn Bridge. And everybody became suddenly aware of Occupy as a consequence of police repression. And Occupy encampments grew up all over the country. There was a really massive, spontaneous movement. And, and there were no demands. So people were chanting, we are the 99%, meaning there was a 1% that was responsible for the economic crisis that had you know, foreclosed 9 million families and made it impossible for young college graduates to get jobs in 2009 and 10 after the Wall Street meltdown. So Occupy was this like really new, exciting, but peaceful movement. And the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund, the PCJF here in Washington, D.C., they filed public records requests about why and how the Occupy movement was suppressed by the FBI, by the U.S. government at the federal level, the state level, the local level, the fusion centers, which were created after 9-11, became like the center of intelligence gathering and surveillance. I read all those documents. I reviewed those documents that were released by the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. And the FBI says over and over again, this is a peaceful movement. Now, remember, 7,000 people were arrested by the end of it. And it was suppressed within four months in a nationally coordinated crackdown. But the thing that jumped out at me, and I think that's so important for our conversation, is that even though the FBI and the fusion centers characterized Occupy as a peaceful movement, they used the anti-terrorism authorities that were granted to them after September 11th to carry out the surveillance and suppression of this peaceful movement. And I read the documents. It's amazing. Like if a group of people were meeting in a library to read Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, they would say at 11 a.m., there are 13 people coming to our book club. 
And then the FBI reports at two in the afternoon that now there's 17 coming to the book group. I mean, it's that level of monitoring all in the name of fighting terrorism or extremism. And now we have this new anti-terrorism unit that the DOJ, the Biden administration says, we're going to go after white supremacists and also anarchist groups. And I want to go back to where we started about this, because if the people who don't like Trump, and that would be all of us, or don't like Trump's politics in particular, which would be all of us, who reject his racism, his misogyny, his you know xenophobia against immigrants, his anti-worker positions, his anti-LGBTQ positions, if we reject all of that and yet embrace the Democratic Party or the bourgeois state or Merrick Garland's new domestic terrorism unit, we are walking ourselves into a graveyard. This is not the way to fight fascism. And any time the capitalist state uses anti-fascism or anti-terrorism as a way to strengthen its own hand, it should be understood by the left as a dire threat. So we have to find an independent way forward. Again, you were there, you were in New York. I mean, the FBI was all over Occupy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's important to understand our movement history, right? Like, and the fact that capitalism creates the conditions that oppress, that makes our community live in just miserable conditions. They create that. And at the same time, they want to sell us what the solutions are. And in the midst of that, we have resistance and we have movements like Occupy. And so Occupy happens, is disbanded, is dismantled by the state. And then we have, you know, political responses to that. We had Obama (laughs) as a response, quote unquote, right? And everybody expected for him to do something around Ferguson in 2014. And people saw that he didn't have a response because ultimately he isn't there to service the interest of the ruling class. And so every option, every quote unquote solution that is given, whether from either of the two parties of the bourgeoisie will not meet the interest or the demands of the working class. And I would want to stay kind of like analyzing Occupy, but I want us to think even about our rebellions that happened last summer and how they dissipated because people understood that somehow Biden was going to be accountable to the masses. We have this forgetfulness, you know, that unfortunately is part of how we operate in the United States and what doesn't in many ways allow us to move forward. We think that these political leaders that come from the bourgeoisie, that are there for the interests of the bourgeoisie, will somehow listen to our demands and create a system that responds to our demands. And the reality is that it's not the case. They create a space of pacifying us. And Biden was actually elected because there was an anti-Trump coalition. (laughs) People were against Trump. They were not for Biden. And we can't forget that. It was not that he was the best option. He was not. And so I think it's important for us to understand that Trump, as we mentioned, you know, Trump fascism in general is a result of crisis. Trump is a result of the economic crisis of 2008, 2009, is a result of the crisis of legitimacy of the state. And I think, you know, we need to understand that he is an option for some sectors of the population who understand that the state has failed. And as a socialist, we're not there to protect bourgeois democracy. We're not there to do that. We're here to organize. We're here to move people towards their class interests. And if we are unable to understand that this two-party system does not respond to us, that the state doesn't respond to us, we will undoubtedly lose the opportunity that this moment of crisis offers us to be able to build a politically independent movement away from the logic of capitalism, away from the logic of imperialism, away from the logic and the very values and fabric that allows Trump and other leaders like him to hold power positions, you know, occupy. We could talk about Standing Rock. 
We could talk about Ferguson. We could, I mean, there's so, we could talk about Seattle. We could talk about the, you know, the response to the assassination of Floyd and the COVID crisis. The levels of crises will continue to deepen and our, you know, the masses will continue to suffer more and they will continue to offer us quote unquote solutions like this anti-terrorist unit that ultimately is not a solution for us, is a solution for them to safeguard what capitalism is. And so that needs to be clearly understood by movements. We need to understand that as socialists, our call is to be able to develop a political, economic, social program where we could build cross-sectoral unity. We need to also think about a united front that advances the struggles of the working class and the majority of people in this country, because things are only going to get harder. 2024 is there, and it's very probable that we will see another attempt again. I think Claudia has gotten to perhaps the core question, Gabriel, and I want to stay with it, because bourgeois liberalism presents the fight against fascism as a struggle between democracy, again, it's without its class connotation, which is, in fact, in a capitalist society, if there is a democracy, if there is a form of government where the oppressed are given the opportunity to vote for who's going to oppress them, you know, the sort of sense of variety, if we reduce it to democracy, like bourgeois democracy versus fascism, we end up as anti-fascist supporting a system that is not only really undemocratic, but actually contributes to the rise of fascism because of its own failures. And so it's a dead end. It's a dead end to do that. And the only way to really frame the issue, as I think Claudia has done so eloquently, is to say it's not a struggle between, quote, democracy ill-defined and fascism, but actually it's between socialism and fascism, because the alternative to the organic existential crises of capitalism that give rise to fascism is socialism. And then the question is, how do you do it? How do you have socialism? How can we build it in this, the country of anti-communism? But we had, as she mentioned, Occupy in 2011. Then there was the Black Lives Matter movement after the killing of Mike Brown and Ferguson. Then there was the amazing, surprising takeoff of the Bernie Sanders movement and the, the re-legitimizing of the discussion about socialism. I mean, we could go on and on. There have been other many mass movements against the Dakota Access Pipeline, Line 3, so many struggles. But there's all of these recurring fights that show there is a desire to fight, a desire to unite, a desire for social change. But at the same time, there's this rising tide of consolidated fascism. So these two sides meet each other. And it seems to me that the only answer, if we're serious about defeating fascism and recognizing in our analysis that it is organically connected, not to the form of government within capitalism, but to capitalism itself, that we have to provide a massive, multiracial, multinational united front against fascism that's not purely defensive, not simply trying to stop fascism from coming to power, but that seeks real positive social change. And on that basis, unites the class, unites the working class. The Poor People's Campaign, you know, have made such a contribution because they said they showed that one out of every two people in the United States is either in poverty or near poverty. They're black people, they're Latino people, they're white people, they're Asian people, they're indigenous people. There's something that they have in common, and neither of the bourgeois parties can unite them, but the socialists, if they have the right program, can unite them. In other words, the defeat of fascism has to be organically connected to the struggle against capitalism itself and that kind of a class struggle. That's absolutely right, Brian. And I would just like to return quickly to one of the things that you said earlier. It is true that tactical defense of bourgeois democracies, insofar as they preserve some semblance of the rule of law and protect some progressives, 
is important, right? And there's the threat of a kind of ultra leftist rejection of all aspects of bourgeois democracy. And so the tactical aspect of this is important though, right? That the strategy, meaning the final goal and the objective is not to have Biden in office or Obama or any of the other kind of sock puppets in the Democratic Party who are working for the capitalist ruling class. The overall goal needs to be the development of a socioeconomic system that is more egalitarian and serves people's real needs. So the real fight, the strategic fight against fascism is and needs to be the fight for socialism. Now, the real question then becomes, how exactly do we do that in our particular conjuncture? And that would be, it'd be great to have even more time to explore this. But one thread I'd like to pick up on in the exchange between you and Claudia is the need that a united front be offensive, meaning that it goes on the offense, right? Not that it be uh, derogatory or mean or things like this, but that there actually is a direction that is very clear that is defined by the strategy, right? We can go on the offense because we know where we're headed. We're not simply on the defense and trying to keep someone in office who seems to be the lesser of two evils, but is nonetheless evil. The other thing that I'd like to add to that though is one of the important organizing strategies that has been used in the history of the fight against fascism is what's referred to as a united front from below. And what's meant by that is that the leadership of a lot of the organizations that are either in bed with the Democratic Party or close to the Democratic Party are trying to direct people into the graveyard of bourgeois democracies. But a popular front or a united front from below seeks to connect with the rank and file of all of these organizations in order to bring them into a common struggle for a progressive socialist oriented political and economic system. And this is so important in our moment because a lot of the grievances that are being expressed by those who either are embracing Trump or embracing the Democratic Party, they have real grievances, like economic grievances. There's the COVID crisis, there's the unemployment, there's the housing crisis, et cetera. And so we as progressives need to fight a war for the hearts and minds of the American workers who have not been given their due by the system that exists and bring them into a common united front from below in order to build the movement against fascism now, not simply waiting until it's either too late or they have too much power and things are so consolidated that we don't have the kind of level of, of mobility that we would need in order to really fight the fight and win. So important, Claudia, this united front from below, which is both defensive against fascism, but also has a positive program. And also, as Gabriel is pointing out, not to take a sectarian attitude towards the working class. In other mm -hmm. words, to meet the working class where it is, not to try to impose, as so many like leftists on social media do, talk about the workers as if sort of almost the same as Hillary Clinton's the deplorables comment. You know, I can tell you from my own family background, my extended family, we come from Western New York, industrial cities, Rochester and New York, cities that have been hollowed out. My father, when he worked at Kodak, had you know 55,000 workers, now it has 1,000 or 2,000. Rochester's a murder capital. The other part of my family from Buffalo. At a family funeral, I was talking to some of my relatives who are working class folks in Western New York and pretty poor actually. And I was asking them, who are you going to support? And they were going to support Bernie Sanders. They supported Bernie Sanders, a couple of them. They ended up voting for Trump because they were so disillusioned with the Democratic Party. Those workers were up for grabs. In other words, they if you say in advance, anybody who votes for Trump is like a lost cause, not only is it wrong, it just misses the boat tactically. Mm -hmm. Or if you denounce parts of the class because people are using language or words that are different from the acceptable, correct words of the left, and you stop talking to people and stop building with them and stop organizing with them, you know, the left loses under that on that basis. The only way to form a united front from below is to be able to have a positive political program that meets the needs of all of those sectors of the working class and also respects people rather than denouncing people in advance. 
and finally, I'll stop here and then get your comments. The other thing that I think we must reject is the idea that fascism is going to be defeated by a small group of leftists who are going to go out and fight the small groups of fascists in the streets. Like the way to defeat fascism is to mobilize the masses of people. Small group skirmishes don't do anything except give the state an excuse to stiffen its own instruments of repression. But when we think about what happened after George Floyd, 35 million people were in the streets, half of them for the first time. That was a very hopeful moment and obviously something that needs to be replicated and built into our strategy. Mm-hmm. In complete agreement with you, Brian, I think it's important for us to acknowledge the fact that this crisis of legitimacy that we are experiencing or that the state is experiencing right now is due to unresolved questions based on people's conditions and needs. And so we as progressives, as leftists, as socialists, we need to be able to tap into what those demands are. We need to be able to tap into what those struggles are. We need to be able to accompany, that's a very like key word in Latin America and the Caribbean, accompany, walk with, side by side, working class people who are demanding to advance working class struggles. And so the sectorism or the sectarian perspective has not allowed us to move forward. It will not allow us to move forward. We need to think broadly and we need to organize broadly and we need to be in spaces that we may feel uncomfortable being in, where the masses are, where people are organizing. You know, In Latin America and the Caribbean, a lot of those spaces were the churches. You had communists going to churches and organizing within church spaces. And so we need to think about what are the spaces in which working class people are at and that they are actually talking in a very organic way about the necessities and about the issues they have and work to organize with, without imposing, but understanding right the ideological pieces that come with having lived or living in a capitalist, imperialist, fascist society, right? I think it's important for us to be able to have an analysis that situates us in a current moment. That's also something that unfortunately our political organizations or the spaces of organizing don't necessarily do as often as we should. Have an analysis of the current moment that also introduces the state of the ruling class, not only where the movement is, but also where is the ruling class? How are they operating? What are the mechanisms that they're utilizing, including their mechanisms of propaganda and their mechanisms of ideological warfare? We don't often want to tap into how people are being molded culturally and ideologically. And so we we need to be able to do that. We need to be able to, yes, have a social, economic, and political program that builds principled unity (laughs) because we also want our unity to be principled and we also need to understand who are the folks that we will go to war with and who are the folks that we need to build some tactical alliances with for a particular moment we need to know that really clearly and the reason that i bring that up is because we often think that the democrats could be our friends and they are not our friends As we wrap up here, and I'm going to come back to both of you, I want to pick up on that point, Gabriel, and then I'll come back and get, Claudia, I'll give you the final word. A principled unity, a principled unity. That's so important because there are elements in the so-called left, some of them are sort of independent leftists, who say, look, let's, let's find a point of unity with the right. Let's find points of unity with the right wing because the right wing is also, in some cases, anti-war or in some cases against the government or against the surveillance state. So let's unite with them, which I think is a recipe for disaster because you can't have principled unity with racists. You can't have principled unity with white supremacists or with those preaching hate against women or hate against the LGBTQ community. You can't make those like negotiable issues or second rate issues. So the principled unity is to have things that we believe in, like anti-racism, like the fight against racism, like the fight for equality, like the fight against sexism and patriarchy or any manifestation of discrimination and bigotry against the LGBTQ community. You know, the principle of having the working class be 
a class that can emancipate itself. You know, like these are important principles, the principles of internationalism, where we don't say, oh, we're fighting for bread and butter issues at home, but to hell with Venezuela or to hell with Cuba. We can't be bothered. Or even worse, we're going to join the chorus against Cuba or Venezuela. So there has to be a principled unity. But what we're talking about, Gabriel, is reaching to other parts of the working class who may not yet be leftist, may not yet be socialist, may even be at the moment voting for Trump and winning them over to a principled position of unity, which is possible. So in other words, the principled unity isn't unity for unity's sake with the right wing, but a unity based on principle that attempts to chip away at sectors of the masses who are right now under the spell or demagoguery of the right wing to bring them where their class interests really are. And that is always a struggle for every legitimate, valid, and viable socialist or communist movement is to be able to achieve that. Anyway, I'm going to get your final thoughts, and then, Claudia, you get the last word. I think it's so important to be able to identify the real needs, concerns, and problems of the working and toiling masses, and to recognize at the same time, as Claudia just pointed out, that they've been systematically subjected to the most extreme forms of ideological warfare and propaganda, meaning through the educational system, the mass media, and other such things. And so that contradiction between their grievances, their subjection to you know, the violence of the capitalist system on the one hand, and then the ideological and propaganda machine that attempts to explain their very real grievances by identifying false causes, right? So the cause is immigrants or the cause is China or other such things. And part of the ideological war that we need to wage as progressives and socialists is the war for those hearts and minds of workers who do have very real concerns that need to be taken seriously and they need to be freed as much as possible from the propagandistic capture by the capitalist ruling class and then the hench people who work for them. And that means bringing people into the struggle and trying to educate them about the real sources of the problems they're facing in the world. To do that, it also means that we're put in a situation where we have to act on so many of the forces that are operative in the world today and use them as the incredible teaching moments that they are. We're in a global pandemic where 415,000 people died in the United States last year, Two died in China, 19 died in Cuba. This is an incredible teaching moment for us. It's the tale of two systems. Socialism works for addressing the healthcare needs and the vitality of the working masses. Capitalism does not. It throws you to the wolves and gives you ideological obfuscation as opposed to real education. And so a lot of the work that I think we need to do for this united front from below and the principled unity that both of you pointed out so importantly is the work of bringing the real interests of the working classes into this struggle to agitate, organize, and build power against not only the immediate threats of fascism, but the capitalist system that keeps fascism alive in order to discipline the working class. Very well said, Gabriel. That's Gabriel Rockhill. Dr. Gabriel Rockhill. I forgot the Dr. Gabriel Rockhill. It's all good. Uh, he's a founding director of the Critical Theory Workshop and professor of philosophy at Villanova University. Claudia De La Cruz is the co-executive director of the People's Forum, a popular educator, community organizer, and theologian. Claudia, you get the final word. No, thank you. I appreciate it. I think it's important, if I were to, you know, as we leave this conversation, I think it's important for us to remember, we shouldn't have any faith in the bourgeois democracy system. Like, we shouldn't. It's never responded to working class interests, which means the majority of people in this country, it has in, in all its forms intervened in the development of popular democracy outside of this country. And its call is to do precisely the same thing here in the United States, to topple any type of process that will reach or get us further to reaching what popular democracy looks like. And so in that context, in that reality, our task as progressive movements, our task as leftists, as socialists, is to be able to build this united front from below, 
that allows us to build a unified movement that is independent from the two-party system, that has principles that are anti-capitalist, that are anti-imperialist, that are anti-patriarchal, that are anti-racist, that divorces itself from the logics that has not allowed us to be able to develop as human beings and that is crushing the environment as well. If we are unable to do that, if we're unable to start this process now during this current crisis, we will be going backwards 50 years or more. Like this is the moment to do it because the moments of crisis have been key moments for the ruling class to advance for as long as the working class doesn't have an actual plan and has not developed strong political organizations to move these forward. And so we have a lot of work to do, but we should also be very much emboldened and have a lot of hope by the fact that people keep rising up and struggle. We just had strike October. We had the Chicago Teachers Union have a win, you know? People want to continue to fight the system. They understand that the system doesn't work and people are looking for answers. People are looking to have their livelihoods advance, progress. And if we are in support of that, we should be engaged in struggle. And if we dare to struggle, we dare to win. That's the only path. And so thank you so much for, for inviting me. I'm always so glad to be in the same space with you too. Gabriel, Claudia, thank you so much for joining the Socialist Program. We'll be back Tuesday. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.